and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and I'm joined today by Athena Kavlenyu, a comedian, writer and host of Keeping Athena Company podcast. Athena, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I know I'm not supposed to be well. I'm supposed to be not coping with it all, but stay, <laughs> staying home is great. Like, what's the problem, guys? You don't have to leave the house. This is great. Um, so yeah, yeah, there are things that I miss, obviously. I'm getting corona weight um, and all kinds of, you know, there are, there are things that I'd like to change, but generally I'm, I'm used to it now. I adapted very quickly to not having to leave the house, a bit too quickly, if I'm honest. You, uh, your podcast is basically based on sort of bringing people over to talk to you because you've got a young baby. And they're supposed to keep you sane. I mean, is it is it actually sort of weirdly helpful to have a young ba- baby right now? And that you, you, it's not exactly the most sociable time of people's lives anyway, the first couple of years. So it's sort of kind of kind it's, of came in at the right moment. It's massively helpful. And there's a lot of propaganda out there that parents putting out like these kids, they're, they're terrible. There's food on the couch. They <laughs> scream. They don't sleep. They're bloody great. Honestly, they are an infinite distraction from everything. I don't tune into these see little daily briefings anymore. I don't need, like it's still, I've got better things to do. You know, I've got stickle brick to build. I've got mega blocks to build. We've got a little sand table. So now we're doing like little tortoise sand castle things like it's great having kids and my one is everyone says oh it's a good age for a kid but my one's 19 months so it's a great age because she can't quite talk because she, but she, can, she can say random words a bit like boris do you know what i mean carrots you know so it's it's really it's really lovely um and it's a it's genuinely this is a time when most parents obviously are back at work so you you give your you dump your child in some stranger's house or wherever mm-hmm. you dump them and they stay there all day and you pick them up and you put some food in their mouths and you stick them in their bed and that doesn't feel like parenting at all so I get all this time back that I would otherwise have lost because I'd have been hmm. out of the house so I'm trying to enjoy um that as much as possible whilst also appreciating that I probably should be doing more work and not enjoying it so much <laughs> how do you find the whole zoom socializing thing like it, it it sort of I mean, it, it sort of feels like a, a a reassuring but ultimately false version of the thing that you're you're after or that's how it feels to me I mean do you find it more I've got a rule I won't socialize on zoom all right I'll do a oh, work wow. meeting I'm not doing these quizzes I'm not hanging out if I want to talk to you I'll call you but before lockdown, if I wanted to speak to someone, I would call them. I didn't have to see them, right? No one needs to see me. If you want to catch up, we can do it on the phone or via WhatsApp messages. And that was fine before. So I don't know why we're all of a sudden meeting socially on Zoom when we never... I personally, I'm probably objecting a bit too violently against this. It's not that big a deal. But, um, <laughs> I, I genuinely... You just don't want to get change and put on like proper adult clothes. You just are not having want... it. It's just you, most cameras will require the use of makeup. It's the you know it's just how it is. And I can't be. If I'm in my house, I don't want to put a layer of makeup on. Um, and I, I'm also zooming a lot for my actual job. So it's just. And I'm, I don't know why, but I'm finding. I've always found video conferencing quite tiring anyway. Um, so having to do it as a normal thing is even more tiring so when someone gets like yeah let's do a virtual pub I think shut that up your ass I'd rather just watch <laughs> I don't do a virtual pub <laughs> I can't think of anything worse um so we had the, the announcement of Boris Johnson having a baby uh 
well, sorry, I beg your pardon, <laughs> his partner having a baby. Right, yeah. And it kind of split in sort of, you know, like half the people, kind of regardless pretty much of whether they supported him politically or not, split into the can't you just be nice about it? And then the other half saying, well, why should I be nice about anything when thousands of people have died about it? Did you find yourself on one side of this divide? or were oh, you just I think I, I sit in both camps. I think it's totally acceptable to congratulations to him. The biggest shock to me was that his other half's 32. Like, mm-hmm. she's a child. When I was 32, <laughs> I was a child. Like, literally, like, arrested development. These days, like, when I was 32 in 2011, and I was really immature. So imagine what 32-year-olds are like now. After after 15 years of the internet, 10 years of social media, bloody soft-brained fools. And he's had baby with one of them. I can't go over it. I, I couldn't go over that she was 32. She looks, I was going to say she looks older, which is fine. She was pregnant. Um, especially at the globe, but she didn't. <laughs> you're gonna, you might have to cut this out. No, so I didn't, anyway, I didn't, wasn't aware of her age. Uh, so that's when that, that was, that blew everything out the water for me. I didn't care about the gender or the name. I was like, wow, I no idea and even that was interesting because you'd think we'd have made a bigger deal out of that right um hmm. and maybe we did and, and it passed me by no but we I, didn't yeah, no, no. you can you can congratulate the guy who's still calling him a cunt i think it's very uh, can i say <laughs> yeah can I say that? Like. Mm-hmm. yeah you can say congratulations but i don't like you i think that's that's fair uh, <laughs> i mean if, if you're gonna write a message of congratulations to him <laughs> would you call him a cunt in the same message or would you at least leave like some kind of pause between listen the i wouldn't have put it beyond him to have timed conceiving a child to give himself an extended Easter break. I genuinely believe this. Like he thought, let me get, let me knock you up now. And then by the time the long bank holiday weekend's done, I'll be on paternity leave. Well, this is all fucked up for him, hasn't it? So, um, so I'm glad about that. But I just, everything with Boris is so, they induced that child. Do you know what I mean? They, stop it. It's just, he's an extraordinary man. And I can't wait. I hope I'm still around in 50 years time for all the papers to be declassified so you can really understand what the fuck he's been up to. Um, but uh, yeah, he had a baby. Congratulations to him and his partner and their families because babies are wonderful. Um, but he is a politician and he's chosen to come back to work. So that means he is um, game. He's fair game. He's come back to work. Mm-hmm. So he's mm-hmm. on duty. So we can call him a cunt. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely allowed to do that. Um, like I, I just kind of, it was a weird thing, right? Because I, a part of me sort of feels that, you know, by because he's got the press support and by, by virtue of having the situation of, you know, like marriages beforehand, you know, now they're still not married. They're having a child. I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe this could inadvertently create this kind of modernizing process and people are more relaxed about this stuff. Mm. But then I read an article yesterday. I think it was Janet Street Porter who was just like, imagine if he was a woman. And he was like, you know, this is, doesn't know how many kids doesn't, you know, comes out of one relationship. He's in another. It's like, would we have the same reaction? And the only answer you could have to that is like, no, we probably wouldn't. Listen, imagine if he was black. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just imagine, imagine every intersection. Imagine if he had one arm was a pirate. We, you know, it's just every, by all, so I, my issue is not about conservatism. My issue is about hypocrisy. I haven't got a problem with people being conservative, as in small C conservative, but you've got to be conservative with everyone. So if it's not acceptable for me or for you or for, um, or for you know, Shirley down the leisure centre, it can't be acceptable for him. But unfortunately, he won an election. And he won an election based off of years of incompetence and horrible photo opportunities and lies and deception mm. and money wasting. I can't think of one thing this man has ever done or achieved for the public good. 
Like, I genuinely can't. I'm not be- exaggerating here as a, as a left-wing person. I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to grab onto some- I can at least say Theresa May did some good things. You know, there are things that exist in this world. I, I can't stand her politics. But there are things that, even Tony Blair, you know, I can grab onto stuff and I can say, okay, well, this is a positive legacy. He has nothing positive in his political and even professional legacy whatsoever, right? Um, mm. And he's then, and then he has his personal life, which is just chaotic, like something out of Brookside. Um <laughs> And um, and he wins an election, so that's the, that's all the endorsement he needs to say. I can do what I like. So we either treat everybody like this, or we 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 apologise profusely and we change our, our moral codes. I don't think that's, that's going to happen. I'd love to understand why we treat posh upper class white guys differently because they hate us. We know that we know that for nothing. They can't stand us, and yet we accept their crap. I have no idea. Mm. <laughs> mm. Anyway. What do you, this um this stuff today with um Captain Tom Moore was starting to feel a little bit strange. Yes. Like it, it was because you could sort of see like the news producers were sort of sitting there going like, well, okay, you know, it's it's a nice heartwarming story. You know, it's personal. You know, you can see why they might think the people want to hear it. But but it sort of reached this point of like it was like news fetish by the end. Like he'd been turned into like the glorious hero to save us all from COVID. The po- I feel sorry for him now because the poor guy just wants to do something nice. And it's a, it's a beautiful man and it's a lovely story. And a lot of people are saying it's, he's been politicised. This is absolutely not about politicisation. This is about news editors not having fuck all to write about, not knowing what to do. Okay, well, let's get primary kids around the country to sing to him. Yeah, that'll burn up half an hour in the morning. Um, and it's, this, is, this is very poor edit, news editorial decisions and there's nothing else going on. I feel like setting fire to something just to get something else on the news because it's just nothing, something innocuous that we don't need. You know, nothing important and with no, no one's around. But, um, like, like they just maintain social distancing yeah. while, while you've committed arson. That's, I mean, yeah. that's reassuring. But, I want, like, it's, it's just, it's just, there's this guy and he's gone viral and we all know him and the news is thirsty for yeah feel good stories and I hope I, I just I just want someone around him to say no I don't want to fly by he had a fly by you know mm-hmm. planes <laughs> it's like come off it like it's lovely I love that I know his name I'm just, I want to celebrate him but I don't want to make him the face of something that actually isn't isn't that great um and the NHS has relied on charity for decades. This isn't new, you know. Um, and it's about time we started saying, hold on a minute, NHS trusts are also charitable trusts. Why is this? Um, hmm. And let's have that conversation. Hmm. There was, there's quite a lot of flybys going on at the moment. I mean, there was politicians <laughs> suggesting we need to get the red arrows out for the clap the carers thing, where you just sort of think, like, really, is this is this exactly how a politician should be spending their time right now, just dreaming about the red arrows? It's just all getting jingoistic, isn't it? And, and propaganda, uh, like, um, and I just think that the situation... You know, if I was a carer, um, I would probably say, that's great, but are they going to drop some gloves whilst they fly over my home? <laughs> Any masks coming down, little care packages? You know, what I want to see... Bizarrely enough, what I want to see sounds... Re- horribly like what David Cameron wants to see in 2010, which is a bit more community-minded activity that does the work on the ground with his big society. Um, oh, wow. Totally I was not I was not expecting the resurgence of the big society. Right. I wasn't expecting in, you to say it, that's for sure. In, in, in the age of lockdown, when we are really struggling to provide services for people because a lot of these services can't operate in, with social distancing um, 
uh, the, with the rules that come with social distances, what we actually need is people on the ground who live very close to people who need this kind of assistance helping out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this actually now's the time we need the public to run the libraries, or now's the time we need um, people to, to. And actually, they did they did that they did that volunteering thing. Where you could sign up and you know get involved in delivering things to older people and stuff. But in terms of flybys and clapping and God knows what unicycling and tap dancing and all this stuff, I feel like it's all. Um, could, it can all very easily, uh, too easily become a distraction and a lot of things can happen underneath our nose that are nefarious and we don't see it because we're juggling for the NHS. And uh, so we should keep an eye on the on the government, definitely, whilst we're doing all the celebratory palaver. How do you think it's going to mix up with the VE Day celebrations? That's like May 8th. <laughs> um, I'm never... I've never really been keen on these street party things. They started with the Jubilee. Do you remember that? We never used to do these things before. And then there was a Jubilee mm. and everyone had a street party and everyone thought it was a really good idea to sit outside and eat cheese, cheese hedgehogs. <laughs> God knows what. And, you know, like I'm, I'm, pers- I'm the kind of person, if I leave my house and I see a long kind of trestle table with food, I don't see food. I see 30 kitchens. But I don't know... If you wash your hands, I don't know if you wear a hairnet. Like I'm, I'm not necessarily keen on on that. I can't have no fun that you, as you can, as you can probably tell. Um, so yeah, um, community stuff is great and I love it. But I, I, and I do think it's nice actually. But with V Day celebrations, it's all just so forced, and it's never proper. We never properly celebrate what World War Two was about. We never talk about the Commonwealth, or we never talk about. Um, you know the full picture we just take snapshots of it and we say isn't this great and i'm more i'm more interested in the stuff they choose not to highlight um that interests me um in many ways it's it's forced bonhomie that's what i don't like about it it's just most if it didn't happen if it didn't happen i'm telling you we it would pass us by it really would so do we do we care because um, it passed me by until some people were like oh the ve celebrations are still going to happen aren't you glad i was like i didn't even know that was happening in the first place mate um, they was going to pass me by and that doesn't mean I don't appreciate what VE Day is and is about did you hear that because because we can't do the street party stuff on the 8th we're going to do it in August right did you and that's because mm. there's a date in August which is the day that the Japanese surrendered which I, I'm telling you right now in my whole 38 years of living I've never celebrated the day the imperial Japanese nation surrendered <laughs> to that mm. height I mean not least it immediately, you know, it was following the fact that they just dropped atomic bombs on Japan. It's <laughs> it just, just hideous. It's just hideous. And the idea that we now have to come out and pretend we ever gave a shit, it's just boring me. It bores me. Um, and we we all get swept along by it. And, and that's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with being swept along by it because it can make you happy and it can get you out for the day and it can bring people together. But I, I just, in this climate, I don't want to think about it. I want to think about more what the government's doing and, and how it's helping us through this and how it's going to get us out of it whilst it, whilst it ends. Um, it's just all too much of a distraction for me. It does feel odd, doesn't it? Just because it, I mean, someone wrote in a blog the other day, it was Chris Gray, sort of saying, you know, it is, it's like all of history doesn't exist. There's just this one moment in history that this country is capable of referring back to, which is the Second World War. And which, which is an event that it, it doesn't even really properly understand what took place or why it happened. And, and it sort of becomes this weirdly oppressive thing, even though I've read quite a lot about the Second World War. I mean, it's, it's like there's no, there's no taking, you know, away from the severity of it or, or Britain's behaviour. But, 
because it seems to be the only part of history that we talk about, and because it's then used as a metaphor for so much of our politics, it was used relentlessly during mm. Brexit and incessantly during during the COVID crisis, where mm. it, it seems like the only metaphor that's ever used is it, war in general, and usually quite specifically the Second World War. That the combination of it with our current situation kind of makes me a little bit wary, to be honest. It's Orwellian. It's completely Orwellian. And they, it's it's subtly done to make it feel unpatriotic to object to things. That's all it is. Mm. By you, by tying um, things that have nothing to do with the war to the war, which we know, which I think sadly, these I learned quite a lot about World War II when I was at school. I don't know if that's the case anymore. And, um, I, and I know when once um, Neil Ferguson got his hands in the curriculum, I'm sure that a lot more got swept <laughs> under the car. I mean, literally, his, his curriculum was actually white people are great, A star. Um, you got an A. Um, so it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> that's his, that's it, all of his books in a nutshell. Um, they deserve to die. They didn't have electricity. That's 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 his history. It's, it's ludicrous. Um, and I'm not misinterpreting his history. I'm sorry. This is actually what he's. This is literally what I boil it all down to. Anyway, going back to the to the point I'm trying to make. Um, yes, we we talk we we get the language of a world or two into 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 the lexicon of things that have nothing to do with war to make it feel unpatriotic to criticize the government whilst they're doing said things so for example fighting covid-19 it's orwellian or just lazy lazy speech writing boris probably doesn't know any other, other way to speak you know <laughs> we sometimes we sometimes we give these people too much credit this is probably just how he speaks you know and this is how he was brought up he knows no other way It's not, it's, but it's not even just, I mean, I was noticing Keir, you know, just the, like Keir Starmer used a similar metaphor, you know, the front, the front line is always like the classic metaphor to use. And it's such a strangely deceptive metaphor because this is the exact opposite of that. I mean, it's, it's sort of more disturbing than that because you can't see the thing that gets you. And in fact, you know, this week's been rainy, but when it's sunny and I have to go to the shop to get something, I, I find it really hard to believe that there's a thing out there that can harm me that I can't see that would impact later. And so I sort of, you know, like even on just like a really sort of practical basic level, I find it like quite an unhelpful, like an unhelpful metaphor for them to use. It's a rubbish metaphor. And the other thing is when you're in the front line in a war, you join the army and you understand that if you go to war, you're going to be on a front line facing an enemy. When you become a, a, um, a, a courier for the NHS or a doctor or a nurse, you just want to go to work, do your x-rays and go home. You know, you're not on a front, you're not on a front line. Do you know what I, mean? no one, I don't want anyone in, in, who's got done six years of medical on the front Front line. You know how much drinking they do in medical school. They ain't fit for. They ain't fit for. You know, it's just it's it's ludicrous. It's and I think it, it positioning um, these individuals in this way is actually quite dangerous because it takes away um, quite a lot of agency from them. What if they don't want to go to work? What if they're saying it's not safe and I don't want to work where it's not safe? Well, you got to. You're on the front line. They did not sign up to be on the front on the front line. I, I genuinely. Even though we talk about PPE a lot, and by the way, as a project manager who worked in construction, I'm ecstatic PPE is now in the mainstream language. Like every every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, PPE is wonderful. Like, because uh, like, I, I never, this, I'm, I'm meandering here, but I never, even though I worked construction, I didn't know anything about building, but whenever I got the opportunity to wear PPE, oh, it was the best day of my life. Hats. Hard toe shoes, high vis jackets. I'd feel like um, like Bob the Builder for a day. It was great. But anyway, <laughs> this PPE thing is just a fucking disaster. How how did we know 
that this thing that spreads as quickly as colds and flu that can kill people, that we knew people would need to treat these individuals. How could we, how dare we send them to work without adequate protection? I've seen people, um, not personally firsthand, but in the fight against Ebola, for example, there was never a PPE issue. Do you know what I mean? When we were talking about issues that affected uh, tropical countries, in particular in West Africa, we weren't saying, oh my God, they don't have enough PPE. You know, so why is it that other countries who were facing, uh, who have faced these issues before, um, seem to be able to deal with much more deadly viruses, um, and we we weren't able to do to do that. Um, and every t- every day, I read something that is further and further um, damning to to the government. Um, I don't, I just don't think it's that hard to send everyone who needs wet gloves, overalls, and visors. You know, these are not, these are inexpensive pieces. If we're, if we're bailing out businesses all over the country, left, right and centre, we can afford to do that. Surely we can afford to send these people, get the army involved. It's a logistical thing, right? If it's a logistical thing, get the army involved. Make the stuff and send it to people. The Daily Mail managed it. <laughs> Even, did you see that? The Daily Mail got a shipment of some stuff from China and sent to some nurses. I mean, fair play to them, you know? Like, I can't stand that publication, obviously, but... I think it demonstrates something that make the order, send it to where it's needed. Is there any, um, is there anything the government has done over the last sort of couple of months that you would, that that you think actually worked quite well? When Boris I'm, I'm not. Sick, tra- I'm not trying to do the BBC <laughs> sitting on the fence thing. By the way, I'm just no, kind no, no, of being you're right. You're right to ask the question. Thing. And like, like I said, when Boris got sick, it was it was almost comforting to see that everyone was as incompetent as he was. Um, <laughs> it was almost comforting, and I, I just because it was just just for my own entertainment, really. Dominic Raab. He just you ever. I mean, has the term "rabbit in a headlight" in your headlights been more <laughs> apt than when he got to do that? And I just, I just love the, the theatre of it. I love, I love it when they ship out for you pretend on a Saturday you know because no one's watching on Saturday we don't know this ice queen just defrosting in front of us sweating because she has no emotional capacity whatsoever um it's 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 lovely to see people who you had an idea about like these are my this is my opinion on Matt Hancock this is my opinion on Dominic Robb this is my opinion of um Pretty Patel and those opinions are absolutely rock solid correct like you get guys you can judge people based on your first impressions um it's a circus and we are paying the price for Boris Johnson building a team around him based on kind of sycophancy and um I don't know, not on competence. We know it wasn't on competence because he got rid of uh, Sergeant Javid, who as far as, I mean, again, not in agreement with politics, but I tell you something, I would rather he was Home Secretary right now. I really would. Um, and it's just, Pretty Patel is Home Secretary, right? She's about to be done for gross misconduct. She's nowhere to be seen, except for, like I said, on the days that no one's watching telly. Um, it's just, just home, the Home Secretary, this is, this is her turf. You know, this is exactly what she needs to be dealing with. Um, and they've got no idea. For, the, for me, the real shame is Matt Hancock. I mean, why we, why we put unqualified and inexperienced people in the most senior positions in, in, our, in our country? It, we, we have to do something about the way 
there doesn't seem to be any kind of interview process. You know, it's like it's like Premier League clubs appointing David Moyes or like, he's shit. Stop doing it. Like these people are useless. Isn't there an application form? Don't, isn't there a CV? Um, it's it's maddening. So yeah, Boris Johnson getting sick was was probably the best thing he's done. <laughs> That's, that's the best I can do. I'd like to remind you that that is your answer to, can you think of anything the government's done right? Oh, well, can, can you think it's of anything? Scary. I can't think of any. Oh, I can. Okay, I'll go. They were very quick to come up with an economic package. So um, I don't know. They've, they've given Rishi, like, the credit card, right? It's quite extraordinary what they've done. They've just been like, you know, to knock yourself out. Um, he's contactless... <laughs> He's got his card, he's doing contactless everywhere, left, right and centre. I feel like the real problem now, bizarrely enough, there's probably too much stimulus. And I feel like a more measured approach might have been needed because they were just like Oprah. You get you get a stimulus, you get a loan, you get a loan. Um, because they didn't, they were like, oh my God, we're going to do something. And they panicked. And I think on reflection, we're all going to pay for that panic in the future. I'm not saying, by the way, they shouldn't have done that, but maybe... Um, for example, I really think they should have sat down and considered universal basic income. I think that was a real mistake because the uh, furloughing scheme and the loan scheme and the self-employed schemes, they're, they're missing out so many people when the people that are missed out are, are complaining. Like, okay, we'll do, we'll do a different scheme for you. And then some other people are missed out. Okay, we'll do a different scheme for you. And some other people are missed out. Do, do universal basic income. We're all impacted. And so make that and do that as a as a kind of a living cost. So I'm not saying minimum wage, but just something that is modest but can get people by, that that probably would have been a better, more cost-effective uh, way of, of getting people financially through this time. Uh, so this generosity was a good thing, but I think on reflection... Do you know when you're trying to... I, I don't have teenage kids, but sometimes I imagine when my child's a teenager, if she's annoying me, I'll just reach into my bag, pull out some money and just give it to her, tell her to go away. And I feel like that's what the government did with us. They were like, okay, look, we've got to do something. Here's loads of money. And yeah, in a few years' time, we're going to be, pay- oh, we're going to be paying... Back, this back for, for a long time so I wish they'd thought about sustainability How's things in the world in the world of comedy I know I mean you're sort of I mean you do stand up you do writing for the radio you do performance on you know um, you, you sort of cover all of the bases I, I, pres- I presume in terms of writing for radio you know performing radio all of that's fine but the stand up aspect I mean that that just must be in like terrible trouble it is I'm very fortunate I started concentrating on on scripted comedy and writing a few almost a year year and a half ago so I've got to a stage where I've got a bit of work on with that if you're a full-time stand-up comedian and if you're a full-time performer of any kind if you're an actor or singer or anything like that it's it's really difficult I can't I can't tell you what what my peers well I can tell you what peers are going through they had a job now they don't um, yeah, it's yeah. as simple as that and the sad thing and that's something that we really have to consider is that when it comes down to a phased return to reopening the economy I know that we're going to be the last people that stand-up clubs are just petri dishes you know like mm-hmm. it's just there was nothing about the environment of a stand-up comedy club that lends itself to um to wanting to revisit that environment in, in the post-corona world until you've got a vaccine, for example, until the cases go down to whatever they need to go down to for, for this to be considered um, uh, to over with. And I guess it's zero cases because it spread so quickly and, and it's so devastating. Um, so it's a worry. There's a lot of Zoom um, stand-up going on. There's a lot of online stand-up. There's a lot of Instagram stand-up. And I'm, I'm trying to do it. And people are kindly donating via Ko-Fi and... PayPal and, and things like that, but nothing, you know, nothing compares to 
you know, 500 people in the in, in the comedy store or whatever, um, each paying 25 quid each, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. what, imagine what comedians make from that. So it's horrible. Um, and I feel for stand-up comedians who are just straight, this is what I do. I go up, I stand on the stage in front of people and I tell jokes because the one thing that's going to take a long time to return to normal is getting lots of people to come together and commune. Um, it's, it's a problem. I don't have anything happy to say about this. It even feels, even on the stuff that you do here, like, well, I mean, I was listening to the news, which you write for the news quiz, actually. And I mean, the same with Have I Got News For You and the same with I mean, a couple of other programs I've heard where the, the absence of studio laughter really does sort of d- distance you from, from what you're listening to. The stuff is still funny, but I, I hadn't realised how reliant I was on that sound to sort of, it's, yeah. It's so laugh, comedy, all comedy, um, and not all comedy, so not all comedy has canned laughter or audience laughter, but comedy is such a participatory art. It doesn't mm. work without an audience. It's not the same. As a stand-up comedian, I've not enjoyed any of my online gigs because laughter is, uh, it's, a, it's a call and response art. You know, I tell a joke, you laugh, I respond to that laughter, then you respond more. And then, I, you know, it's a call and response art. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I write for News Quiz and um, News Jack, and it's just, you, you, you write something funny and you don't get the laughter that you would normally get from mm. um, uh, the, the audience in radio theatre and you don't get that shot of in, endorphins. And if I'm at the right time, I'm not getting that. You do wonder if people listening at home get that it was funny because laughter is also a cue that something's funny. Like, so, funny is a really weird science. It's not like something's funny and it makes you laugh. What happens is something's funny, it makes someone else laugh and then the penny drops in your head, right? And then you mm. laugh and it becomes a communal experience experience um and yeah having laughter around your words is is so important to that it's um i've not enjoyed have i got news for you that much i think i'm allowed to say that because um don't, <laughs> women don't write for that show anyway so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean i think they do but um, generally i've not <laughs> uh, you, you can keep that in i don't mind it's a joke um <laughs> so it's um, it, but I'm not and it's just not the same and you know it's it's the reaction of the audience that you love it's the ooh that was a dangerous joke or the ha that was a funny yeah. joke whereas if you don't have that cue oh how am I supposed to feel about this joke my opinion is I, I need a communal um, I need a communal approval of my of my opinion that's why comedy it doesn't work on when people are sat around round tables because they're all looking mm-hmm. at each other to see whether something's funny or not. But if everyone's facing you, they lose that self-consciousness. Um, and so they use their ears and they're like, oh, this is funny, I can laugh. Um, so yeah, it's a massive loss not having not having an audience is horrible for comedy. It's horrible. It's the, it's the reverse, it's the pure opposite of what comedy's about. Yeah, you, you know what? Yeah, and you can tell it as an audience and it doesn't surprise me at all to hear it from a comedian either. It, 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 it feels more distant. It feels stranger. Sorry to end it on a bad note. We're going to wrap it up. So yeah, the complete absence of laughter will be the theme at the end of this conversation. With Athena, uh, thank you for talking to me. It was really nice talking to you. Uh, what's the, where can people find you if they if they want? Oh, find me on Twitter. I live there now. Um, that's where I do most. I spend most of my time on Twitter. I can't even lie these days. I'm charging my phone three times a day. I'm not leaving the house. Why? This is why it doesn't make any sense. So um, on Twitter and my name, my handle 
is is my name and my, I genuinely I have about three podcasts to edit not found the time too busy dealing with this stickle bit situation oh, right. good, um, job. good job yeah so um, I do have a podcast so my podcast is called Keeping Athena Company and I'm on Twitter so come say hi be lovely uh, thank you very much that was the latest Bunker Daily we'll be back early next week and we'll have our full length show on Tuesday see you then Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>